0: Peter's letter here that we've been looking at for the past several months. If you're dropping into the series here at this point of the letter, you need to understand Peter wrote this letter to Christians who were suffering. They were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. That is what was underlying their hardships. These were believers that were scattered throughout the area that we would call Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire at the time. And they were beginning to experience a de- degree of persecution because of their faith. The, the amount of persecution varied from place to place, city to city, but there was no doubt that it was increasing. And, and there was also clear indications that it could rise even to the level of their lives being taken for their faith. That's what they were facing as, as Peter wrote this letter to these dear believers throughout the the general tone that we've seen of this letter, is that Peter calls them to an attitude of acceptance. To accept that what they are experiencing is from God. They are to accept that their suffering is what it is because their Savior also modeled that kind of acceptance. He accepted that his suffering was from God's hand as God's will for his life and they are to do the same along with accepting their suffering Peter has called them to continue doing what is right even when obedience to Christ is causing their suffering keep obeying Christ continue doing what is right as we've seen throughout the letter this this letter is timely for us as well The the encouragement and the instructions that that Peter has provided to these original readers that were experiencing this, it's not limited to a first century application. There's application for us too. We live in a sin-broken world, a sin-broken world that, that produces endless levels of hardships in our lives. We have suffering of various kinds. Just in the past week. If you think back over the time, we don't even have to go back to the beginning of this series. We can come much more recent than that. Just the past few weeks, we've learned of several severe medical diagnoses within our church family. Most assuredly, during the same weeks, we've all experienced being on the receiving end of of sinful actions from others. These sinful actions, they can bring sorrow into our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we, we held a funeral here in our building for a young wife and mother. We felt the suffering in various ways throughout these weeks that, that sin causes in our lives. Living in this sin-filled, sin-broken, sin-cursed world. We also can see that living in this sin world is also living in a place where hatred for God is increasing. The hatred for our Savior is on the rise. We, we can anticipate that our futures might contain suffering, specifically suffering generated because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We, we have needed the encouragements that we've seen in this letter. We've needed the admonitions so that we can fortify ourselves for what we are currently experiencing— but we also need to fortify ourselves for what may come in the future. We need to be ready to just keep on doing what is right even if that brings suffering. Last week Peter provided brief instructions designed to ensure that the local churches would survive the period of suffering. He, he rounded out that advice they gave to the local churches advising us that the God's grace flows through those who are humble. He, he writes at the end of verse 5 of chapter 5, God is opposed to the proud, but give great, gives grace to the humble. This is our motivation to practice humility toward one another within the context of a local church. God's grace flows through those who are humble. This morning, as you can see on the screen, we're only going to consider two verses. Two verses, verses that are clearly connected to the topic of Humility. In verse 6, Peter writes, Therefore, there's your connection, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. These are probably some of the most well-known verses in this short letter. Uh, I know I memorized both of these verses when I was just a kid in Sunday school. What was never connected for me, though, when I memorized these verses was how these verses are intimately connected to suffering. When, when I memorized these verses as kids, they were just standalone verses. I memorized, get the star on the, the wall, or whatever the, the reward was at the moment. I never understood how they tie to suffering. In fact, As a kid, I never even realized Peter's letter was dealing with suffering. These were just two disconnected verses that dealt with being humble before God and praying about things that concern me. It's possible this morning that's the same way that most of you look at these verses. I don't know if you've looked at these verses differently or not. You may know these verses well, but you may have not thought about the context in which they were given. These are written to Christians who wanted to endure suffering. These are Christians that were united to one another in their, in their world of suffering for Christ. This is not a set of verses for us individually as Christians. This is a set of verses for us united as Christians, dealing with the, the hardships that come in this broken world. The context is one of suffering. From the beginning of this letter to the end of this letter, that's the context. To to fully understand the verses this morning, we need to realize that Peter has been giving us the tools that we need to endure suffering for the cause of Christ. Yet Peter's goal throughout has not been that we would simply endure. Rather, Peter's goal is that we would flourish in our faith even if we find ourselves engulfed in suffering for our faith, Peter wants us to flourish. In the context of suffering, the main idea that these two verses give us is that Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. I almost began with a a false prayer this morning. I almost began with a prayer that goes along the lines of, God, what a joy it is to be able to pray for you. What a joy it is to know that you created a world that we no longer have to actively depend on you every day. That we don't have to come before you on a regular basis because you've given us all we need to endure on our own. We can make it ourselves. I almost began that way because that seems to be the way we often live our lives. Prayer is the last resort. Depending on God is the last thing we do. We act as if we are grateful that God doesn't make us depend on Him moment by moment, day by day. Friends, Christian humility is the only thing that allows us to flourish under suffering. The reason these verses point to prayer is because when we pray, we are expressing our humility before our Almighty God. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. We may suffer. We may suffer for our faith in Jesus Christ. But but even as we do, our faith can flourish if we practice Christian humility. Because, as Peter told us at the end of verse 5, Christian humility is what generates a channel for God's grace to flow into and through our lives. So as we look at these two verses in the context of suffering, we can see two actions this morning that we need to take to practice Christian humility so that we won't live our lives acting as if we can go without God at all. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. The first thing that we see in verse 6 is The first thing that that we need to have for Christian humility to to come about is that we must accept whatever God brings into our lives as His goodwill for us. Whatever God brings as His goodwill for us. It is is one thing to walk outside in the morning and, and discover a flat tire on our car and think that some random chance has come about that will make us late for work. It's another thing to encounter that same flat tire and think that God has scheduled this flat tire into my life today. It is one thing to hear the doctor announce that, that you have cancer and to think that the luck of the draw has arranged for some random cancer cells to survive in my body. It's another thing to think that God has designed those cancer cells specifically for me. How we respond to every trial that comes into our lives, both the large trials and the small trials, doesn't matter how we respond, depends on what we think lies behind the particular trial that we're facing. Faith. Faith in in the God of the Bible requires that that we believe that everything that God does is for good purposes. That's part of his good will. That it has something ultimately behind it that, that serves God's good purpose. We we cannot believe in God, as God has revealed Himself in Scripture. We cannot believe in God and simultaneously think that He allows something to come into our lives with a malevolent design. God is good. Everything that God does is good. That's what the Bible teaches us about God. Lest we think that that God does not always have our best intention at heart, all we have to do is look at the cross. Look at the cross. God was willing to sacrifice his own son. His only Son. His one-of-a-kind, unique Son. To the most horrendous death we can imagine. So that His wrath that was rightfully directed against us could be placated. By the way, this evening we're studying the wrath of God in our study of spiritual attributes. God's wrath is real. It is horrendous. It is uh, more than we can comprehend because he is a holy God. Come tonight and find out more about it. But as we understand God's wrath, it was directed against us justly. And he sent his son so that it could be placated. And then he adopted us as his children at the cross. Do you believe in Jesus as Savior? That's what it takes to have his wrath placated, to have it covered, to have it taken care of. If you do not know Jesus as Savior, talk to me before you leave today. The cross demonstrates most conclusively that God's will for our lives is good because he is the ultimate victim of sin. If you want to use the victim word, he suffered more than anyone to make sure that sin was dealt with. How do we accept whatever God brings into our lives as his goodwill for us? How can we actually live that out? That's the question that we need to explore this morning. As we live our lives amid crying babies and rush hour traffic and angry spouses and demanding bosses and the countless other things that pile onto our lives, how do we live out a reality that God is always good? There are two parts, two points rather, made in verse 6 that together allows us to accept whatever God brings into our lives as his goodwill for us. One, we must trust that nothing happens outside the control of God. Nothing happens outside God's control. Peter says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God In the context, that would mean that the believers that Peter was writing to, that they should accept that God has ordained their suffering. It was God's will for them. If we extrapolate that idea, we can extrapolate that idea to encompass everything that experience. Even if suffering for the name of Christ is God's will, then everything that comes is God's will. Nothing happens outside His control. The picture of God's mighty hand, that symbolizes his absolute control of this universe. That, that's a symbol that, that's deeply rooted in the Old Testament scripture. God's mighty hand, Israel, was delivered by God's mighty hand from the Egyptians. It was God's mighty hand that ensured that Pharaoh would refuse to release the Israelites from their slavery It was God's mighty hand that brought ten judgments upon Pharaoh to show how mighty God was. It was God's mighty hand that broke Pharaoh's resistance, that ensured the Israelites would be released with gifts from their former owners. It was God's mighty hand that drowned Pharaoh's pursuing army, that protected the nation in the wilderness, that gave the nation the promised land through conquest, and on and on. God's mighty hand governed everything that the nation experienced. The picture that Peter gives here, that we exist under the mighty hand of God, that picture is intended to, to help us realize that nothing happens outside God's control. Nothing! Ultimately, things do not happen by chance. Nor do things happen by the natural laws of nature. In fact, things do not ultimately happen because Satan causes them to happen. Not even our enemies or or those who hate Christ, the ones who brought the suffering on these believers, are the reasons that things ultimately happen. Things happen because God ordains them to happen. They are under his mighty hand. God may use all these other things, Satan evil people, natural laws of nature. He may use all these things of the means by which his purpose is accomplished, but that does not mean they happen without being under his control. Job understood this. Peter understood this. Jesus understood this. We need to understand this. Now, We also need to understand, simultaneously, that all these things happen without God ever becoming the author of sin. It's one of those things that causes our mind to to sometimes pop just a little bit, trying to think it through, and then once our brain pops, we have to just accept. The Bible says very clearly that nothing happens outside God's control, but the Bible just as clearly says God never is the author of sin. We were talking about this topic last week in our book club. In, in, in our book club, we, we came to the understanding that we can affirm what the Bible teaches about God without necessarily understanding how God does it. We can understand what God does without understanding how God does it. Now, I understand it's hard to accept that God controls everything that happens. It's hard to accept that. Some of you have experienced some horrific things in your life. Horrific. It's hard to think that God ordained those horrific things to occur. Yet that is what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. Plus, as we were discussing in our book club last week, it's much more comforting to understand that God who loves us enough to send his own son to die for us, and God who promises that no matter how horrific the the circumstances are, he is working that out for a good purpose. It's much more comforting to understand that he is going to use this horrific thing for his glory and our good than it is to have any alternative. Random chance. If that was behind it, it would mean that there was no purpose at all in what happened. That what we endured just happened, and we just got to deal with it. Well, there isn't much comfort in that. If Satan were controlling, then our suffering was because someone who hates us and is seeking to destroy us had the upper hand at least for a moment. Well, that's not very comforting either. It's much more comforting to be able to say, along with Joseph, in Genesis 50 verse 20, that you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Accepting that nothing happens outside the control of God is humbling. It means that we have no ultimate control. We are morally responsible for our choices, Before holy God, that's why Peter had told us that even as we suffer, we need to keep on doing what is right. We are morally responsible, but whether we do what is right or do what is wrong, we also need to understand we do not overturn God's sovereign plan. Rather, our choices accomplish His plan. Of course, Peter... Heard the Lord personally teach on humility many times. In Matthew 23:12, Jesus says, "Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted." Peter heard those words echoed many times because we hear them echoed in Luke 14:11 and Luke 18:14 as well. Peter heard the Lord teach on this, and now Peter is repeating it again for us. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The hand that controls all things. Humility begins by trusting that nothing happens outside God's control. Humility is strengthened when we trust that God will not fail to reward a humble spirit. He will not fail to reward a humble spirit. In verse 5, as I have said a couple times, we're reminded that grace flows through humility. In verse 6, Peter encourages us so that when we choose to accept that God brings things into our lives as humble believers, when we place ourselves in that humble position, Peter encourages us that we can have confidence that there will come a time that God rewards us. There will come a time when God will exalt us. In fact, If you look carefully, Peter words the verse in such a way that the anticipation of the coming exalting, knowing that somewhere in our future, maybe it's far down the line, we don't know where in our future, though, this exaltation is assured, that is the motivation behind our acceptance of humility. We humble ourselves knowing that God will exalt us. We're willing to accept humility now, Because God will exalt us in the future. Peter says that the exaltation will come at the proper time. Now based on the the many times that Peter has pointed to the eschaton, the, the final conclusion when Christ returns in this letter, the number of times he's pointed there, I believe that's what he's referring to again. Most likely he's saying the proper time comes in the eschaton. We do not have any promise anywhere in Scripture that that we will be vindicated or exalted in this life. But we have many, many promises that we will be vindicated and exalted in eternity. In our series through Revelation on Sunday evening a couple weeks ago, we we saw the martyred souls in in Revelation chapter 6 crying out, Uh, in their martyred condition, crying out to the Lord, when will our vindication come? And remember, they were told, wait just a little bit longer. They were to wait because there were still more martyrs to be gathered. Last week, when we looked at Revelation chapter 7, we saw countless martyrs standing before the throne of God there in chapter 7. Beyond numbering, number of uh, martyrs, These are examples of those who were never vindicated in this life. They died for their faith. But their vindication was assured. Those who killed them were experiencing the wrath of the Lamb. Even as they stood before the throne of God, God's wrath was coming upon those who had killed them. The judgments of the Lamb was falling. And the glimpse we have of these martyrs there in Revelation 7 was a glimpse of them standing, praising God in their exaltation because they were praising God for their great salvation that could not be touched even by their death. Nothing could touch them. Those who had given their lives because of their faith were rejoicing in their exaltation. And we can have the same confidence. We too will be exalted in the proper time. It does not matter what we endure in this life. It does not matter what suffering we accept from God's hand. Nothing can touch the glorious eternity that lies before us as believers in Jesus Christ. That's why we can accept whatever God brings into our lives now because we know that God has a good purpose behind it. And he will not fail to reward a humble spirit. We know that because he is a good God. God will not fail to reward a humble spirit. Trusting that truth is essential to developing humility. To, to have humility, we, we must accept whatever God brings into our lives as his good will for us. Nothing happens outside God's control. God will not fail as well to reward a humble spirit. We, we need to trust both of these things so that we can accept whatever it is that God brings into our lives. We know that one of the things, for sure, that will come into our lives is suffering. Because we live in a sin-broken, sin-filled world. Suffering will come. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. Flourish. Verse 6 teaches us that Christian humility requires accepting whatever comes as God's will. And in verse 7, we see a second thing, another thing that, that we must do in order to have Christian humility. Another thing we must do, we must stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. We must simply stop it. Stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's what Peter says. Often I believe we view this verse, again, simply as an encouragement to stop worrying about things. To pray instead of worrying. That's good encouragement, but misses the full impact of what Peter is saying here. Peter is just exhorted us to be humble. We are to be humble, and now he's telling us how. How do we do what he's told us to do? How are we humble? How do we develop humility in our lives? How can we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Well, we can humble ourselves by casting our anxiety on him. The way to humble ourselves is to stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. The the word that Peter uses for casting is used only one other time in the Bible. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verse 35. I'm sure Peter remembered this event very well in his own mind. After all, we remember the event that occurs in Luke chapter 19. Two weeks from now, we're going to commemorate that event We call it Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt to the great shouts of acclamation as the crowds thought he was coming in victory and was going to set up his kingdom at that moment, they met him with cries of of praise. Before Jesus sat on that colt, we're told in Luke 19 that some of the disciples threw their coats over the back of the donkey the young foal, before Jesus sat down. That's this verb. Now, I don't have to stretch my imagination very far to think of Peter being one of those disciples. Peter happens to be rather impetuous, right? We know that from everything we see about him. I can easily see Peter being one of the first guys to take his coat off and throw it over the, the colt so that Jesus could sit on it. Well, that's the verb that Peter uses here in verse 7. The idea of, of tossing or throwing something down. He says, whatever our concern is, whatever we're worried about, whatever we're trying to control, rather than solving it with our own solution, we're to toss it before God. Toss it and leave it there for God to handle. To help us understand this more, I want us to recognize two things that are implied in this verse. Things that are implied in this idea of casting our anxiety upon Him because He cares for us. First, Anxiety comes from pridefully thinking we have control. That's the root source of our anxiety. It comes from pridefully thinking that we have control. Remember, Peter is giving us the how for humility. Pride is the opposite of humility. We never are humble when we are prideful. They're mutually exclusive. Pride destroys humility. Humility destroys pride. They they cannot exist together. How do we develop humility? We cast all of our anxiety on God. Anxiety comes when we are unsure that we will be able to make happen the thing that we want to make happen. Anxiety comes when we believe that if we just think a little bit harder, if we just work a little bit harder, if we just become smarter, then we can influence the outcome to be more favorable for us. Anxiety comes because we think that we can control the situation. Anxiety at its root is pride. Is pridefully thinking that we have control. That that we can, in some fashion, determine the outcome of our situation through our own intelligence and efforts. Now, I expect I'm going to step on some toes at this point. But that's okay. I'm aiming for them. I've heard people say things like, I'm just naturally anxious. I am naturally a warrior. I'm a worrywart. Friends, when I hear that, to me, that sounds like saying... I am just embracing my sinful nature. We certainly can be those things naturally because we're naturally sinful. We're naturally pride-filled. But in Christ, we are called to live differently. We are called to live differently. We are called to put off our sin. And that involves putting our anxiety on God continuing to embrace our anxiety and accept our worry is displaying pride in that we want to retain control. Even if as we try to retain control, we feel completely out of control in the process. Isn't that the lunacy of sin? Sin, when you actually step back and analyze it, is always idiotic because it never works. The more we try to retain control, God is great and Causes us to feel out of control. We have anxiety because we refuse to relinquish control to our God. Notice Peter says, all your anxiety. That's not most. That's not some of your anxiety. It is all. All is what we are to give God when we do that, we are humbly accepting God's plan for our lives. We are relinquishing our attempts to control the outcome of circumstances that, that God has sovereignly placed in our lives. Mark, 9, or Mark four nineteen, 19, in that verse, our Lord explains that anxiety about life is, is one of the impediments that can choke out God's word and, and can leave us unfruitful. Anxiety chokes out God's word. It does that because we fear that using God's solution, as God has presented in our, in His word, if we fear, we fear that if we do what God says, God's word will not accomplish what we want it to accomplish. And the reality is, it may not. Because oftentimes what we want to accomplish is wrong. What we want to accomplish is not God's glory. What we want to accomplish is not good. God's word may not accomplish what we want it to accomplish. As Peter says, though, true peace comes. True joy comes as we... 1 Peter four nineteen 19, entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Anxiety comes when we think we know better than what God says will work. Anxiety comes when we pit ourselves against God. The answer to anxiety is to humbly do what God has told us to do in his word with the circumstances that God has placed in our lives. We are to stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. And that begins as we recognize that anxiety comes from pridefully thinking that we have control. The, the second thing that we should recognize implicit in the verse here is that contentment comes in remembering that God is loving. God is loving. It, it would be scary, truly scary, to relinquish all control to someone who did not have our best interest at heart. But that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to relinquish our control to someone who may want our best interest. We're called to relinquish our control to one who loves us perfectly. One who demonstrated his love for us by by sending his son to die for us. Again, look to the cross. The cross has proven that God cares for us. Nearly every week on our way home, I ask Grace for a review of my sermon. I don't ask all of you for a review of my sermon. I don't think I could handle it. But I know Grace has my best interest at heart. She tells me the truth, but I know it's because she wants me to do well. She seeks to help me do my best. We will not find stress in relinquishing our attempts at controlling our situation to God. We will find contentment. Stress comes when we hang on. When we relinquish it, we find contentment because we know God has our best interest at heart. And as we relinquish control, we discover that God is not indifferent to what happens in our lives. Rather, God has carefully designed our lives so that by obedience to His Word during the trials He's placed in our lives, while we are obedient, we grow in His grace. As we experience his grace, we discover God's compassion. We we find that as he sustains us in every distress, in every hardship, in every circumstance, we discover that he is a loving God. And every time we begin to doubt that, we need to gaze at the cross again. God is loving. Contentment comes in remembering. That God is loving. That's the second thing that we should recognize here in verse 7. That the second thing that helps us stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. In order to have Christian humility, we must stop trying to resolve our own concerns through our own solutions. Recognizing that anxiety comes through prideful thinking, that we have control, and that contentment comes in remembering that God is loving, that, that helps us stop trying to use our own solutions. That builds Christian humility. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. Suffering will come. It will come. We live in a sinful world. The effects of that sin are all around us. The effects of that sin are all within us. It will come, though. Suffering will come because God has ordained suffering to come into our lives. It will not arrive by accident. It will come because God has ordained that within this broken world, when suffering comes into our lives, He will receive glory. And it will be for our good. The question is, will we respond with Christian humility to the suffering that comes to our lives? In order to respond with Christian humility, we must accept that whatever God brings into our lives is His goodwill for us, and we must stop trying to resolve our concerns through our own actions. I know many of you are suffering even right now in various ways. Now, you're not suffering at the moment directly because you carry the name of Christ. At this time, God hasn't brought that upon us, but, but God has placed various kinds of suffering into our lives. I know some of you are suffering in extreme fashion at this time. There there are medical issues, there are financial concerns, there are heartbreaks and fears, there are disappointments and betrayals. None of these things are in your life by accident. None of these things are there because God lost control every one of them is there because god ordained it for you how are you responding how are you responding they've been placed into your life by your loving god for your good god the the god who cannot lie has said they're there for your good are you responding with Christian humility? Are you humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time? Are you casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you? Are you accepting that what is in your life right now is God's will for you? Have you ceased trying to resolve your concerns through your own solutions? Trusting that doing what God has said in His Word is enough. That is Christian humility. Christian humility is not easy. Christian humility is not natural. Christian humility is what will allow us to flourish through our sufferings. Christian humility allows us to flourish under suffering. Let's pray. Oh God, we so desperately need you. So desperately. We know that all too often we live our lives acting as if we do not. Father, what good God God you are to bring us up short, to show us time and again that we cannot make it through this life without you. Father, what a great God you are, a gracious, loving God you are to bring trials and suffering into our lives so that we learn to depend on you. Father, I pray today that we would be encouraged, that we would be men and women that display true Christian humility because we do bow before you, accepting what you've placed in our lives, trusting that it is there for your glory and our good And that we will be men and women that wait for your grace to come upon us as we steadfastly continue to do that which you have instructed us to do in your word. Simply obey. Father, may we be men and women who, as we obey, rejoice that you are our God. Knowing that there will be the day that we stand before you exalted. May we as Peter said or as James said rather be men and women that consider it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing that through our trials our faith is perfected. Help us Father. Help us to joyfully magnify Christ with the trials of our lives. With the obedience and the faith of our lives. Amen.